Hi, my name is Phil Chu. I'm a classical pianist, and um, well, here I am on Talking Blues. So here's a question I've never asked anybody, but I read somewhere that you, in one sitting, you had like 32 shumais. <laughs> How does that happen? And Marco, okay, I see this is a serious interview. I see you have done your research. I gotta, I gotta sit up now. Um, I, I don't know. I'm a lover of food. It was I was in Hong Kong one of one of my one of my two visits back since I had left um, with my family, and so we were back at a hotel there. And it just you know I'd always love siu mai. It just like brings me back. I don't have that many connections to my heritage, um, in the sense like I I I I, le- I lost Cantonese very quickly from when we emigrated here. Um, and and so there's so much that I can't really relate to. How old know? How old were you when you came? I, I, to Canada? I was three years old when we emigrated, okay. and so food remains the only thing that I feel like I don't have to explain. You know about my connection to to my heritage, and so Sumai just has this extra special thing about it. <laughs> I mean, it's just pork and sh- it's not just pork and shrimp. I'm sorry, it is the perfect amalgamation of pork and and shrimp and and in this kind of food colored yellow wrapper and. It, it, it's like everything to me, and so eating thirty-two was like a I could do I could eat sixty-four. <laughs> How old were you when you did this? Uh, that would have been I think I was twelve when I did that. Oh, okay, but I would do it today. <laughs> well, what I find amazing about dim sum is you go there and it it just you know it's small plates of things, but it fills you up very quickly. Yes, and I can right. imagine thirty-two shumais is <laughs> it's a lot of food. Well, wherever we were at the hotel, they were a little bit smaller, so that did help. They were a little bit smaller. Um, but I don't know, that morning... Wait, was it when I was 12 or was it my next visit? <laughs> you know what? I think it might have been my next visit. It was my next visit. Actually, I was a little bit older, so I would have been 18 or 19. And you didn't have anything else? I may have. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that was a time when I had a bottomless stomach. I'm sure you remember well. Oh, yeah. Was, yes. I mean, <laughs> I regret the fact that I can't eat like that anymore. Yeah, you know, totally. it's just like, it's a- oh, it's like, that's a thing of the past now. <laughs> I was telling my wife the other day, I saw these chocolate-covered marshmallow cookies. And I remember a time when I could eat a box of those and not even think, care. But now, it's just like, <laughs> that would kill me. You know, funny you mentioned Sumai during this pandemic. Um, and I'm not sure if you want to get into the pandemic. I'm sure you have already with other guests. But my, my partner, Marie, I think she had this, she recognized very well. In, you know, in Montreal, either I haven't found it or I'm pretty sure, like, there just isn't great Sumai. Like, there isn't a, a, a large selection of really great Chinese food. or really? Especially for great dim sum. And so my partner, um, she went out of her way and started like trying to make, um, and quite successfully, some dim sum dishes. Like stuff that like people don't do as home cooks. You know what I mean? Like yeah, dim sum yeah. is not a thing you really do as a home cook. Well, it seems like a lot of work. It's actually, it's a lot of work. And then she made, I don't know, the first time she made like 24 of them. And I think she was not a little bit offended when I ate pretty much like 20 of them. <laughs> like in a, in like one breath and, and I, I realized oh you were probably hungry too like this is our dinner and I had just like <laughs> here's four for you yeah. <laughs> wow um, okay so I had the privilege to watch you work over the last three weeks and, and spend way more time than you would know um, <laughs> watching you work because I edited three of your four of your performances I right, think right. so yeah um, and, and and to me, just to sit there on the stage at Kerner Hall and to see you play 10 feet away on stage and do your magic is, 
it's an amazing experience for me. So thank you for that. But I want to know where the piano, your love of the piano came from. Because I presume as, as a classical musician, most people start very early mm-hmm. and it's something that they are given as opposed to you ask for it. But that not always. So how did, how did that happen? How did music come into your life? Yeah, so for me, I started at the age of like six or seven. I had an older brother who's long since uh, stopped piano. He, he still plays guitar. I see your Fender shirt here. And my dad and my brother both play guitar. So he, he still plays and sings for fun. Um, and I started actually recently recording some videos. But anyway, so he was taking piano. So I thought, well, I should take piano. And so we, we took these. I think my dad was just trying to remind me. I don't know my own story very well, but I think we took group classes at first and then we transitioned into private lessons. Um, and you, I'm sure you know well, like the Asian upbringing is just one of those things where you should learn an instrument. And it was like, oh, so I think my parents were like, great, you should learn piano then. And then once you're in it, it's like, great. So now you should do it until like you reach a certain milestone with it, right? It's like a thing where they don't expect you to make a career out of it because. It's not part of the you know right. the, the, the Asian holy trinity of like doctor, engineer, <laughs> lawyer, um, well, musician doesn't. I have to say, my parents never pushed music, and uh, I wound up playing oh, drums for a little while. Okay. So that's I think their fault. But anyway, <laughs> um, so what would have been the first milestone that um, that maybe your parents would have hoped that you would achieve? They wanted me to achieve the ARCT, which is the World oh, Conservatory. Like that's you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Which in, in line with the high school Ontario system meant like basically at your at your OACs at the time or whatever at the end of grade twelve is about when most people would do their ARCT. If you were one of those little geniuses, you do it at the age of ten. But I was not, and so uh, the, the expectation was I would sort of go up to there and then stop probably. Right. I mean, that's uh, ARCT is a serious business. It, you you do you must devote time to do yeah. it, not embarrassingly. Yes. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> while you're going through this. Um, how, what is your feeling towards playing or classical music? Yeah, these are excellent questions. I mean, for me, I don't know. It was just like a thing I was doing that occasionally I was rewarded for. You know what I mean? Like I, I liked pretty simplistic elements of it. I mean, I was a kid, but even as I'm growing up and into my teens, like I like playing fast. I like playing loud. It was cool to like win a little prize here and there for something and, and fun to show off time to time. But for the most part, it was like a real drag. It was, it was a thing that. Like my parents made sure, my dad especially made sure like I had to practice and it was this thing where I, you know, couldn't go out as much or whatever. It just felt like something that was eating up my time. Did you resent it? Oh yeah, very much. There was, there was <laughs> very much. There was a part of me that, that appreciated feeling special about doing it because I understood that like it, it was a little bit different, you know, but intrinsically like there was... There wasn't like a lot I was drawing from it. I remember a couple things. One was, uh, I can't remember how old I was exactly. Still fairly young, I think, maybe eight or nine. And I had just gotten so tired of it all. And so one day, I this was like a... And you'd have to know my father at the time to understand how brave this was of me. But <laughs> I brought one of my music books in front of him and I tore it up. I t- ripped the thing <laughs> in half and I just marched out of the room. To his credit, like he didn't yell, he didn't storm after me. In the next morning, Marco, this is this is this is the, this is how you let your kids know without saying anything. I, I came down for breakfast, and the book in its entirety had been taped back together and was sitting like at the kitchen table. Yikes! <laughs> no word was exchanged, and I kept practicing after that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, when did you think you were good at? Playing, and I'm not saying like amazing, but no. when when you thought I'm not bad at this, 
Um, I think the first recognition was when I, I, I applied to, my dad encouraged me to, uh, I'm, I'm telling the story in the wrong way, but basically we met an adjudicator. Her name was Jenny, her name is Jenny Regeer at a, at a provincial competition. And we, and he really liked, uh, I played a, a masterclass for her after the competition. And he really liked the way that she taught. And so he, he did a little research about her, um, and to find out where she was. And she was teaching at the Young Artist Performance Academy, which is now known as the Taylor Academy right. at the Royal okay. Conservatory, which is a, a sort of a pre-college program for, for advanced uh, classical music training. And by this time, we were living in London, Ontario. But he proposed me this idea, would you like to apply? You know, did you like Jenny? I said, yeah, sure. Like, I was still very just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, music for me, was I had no plans to do it in post-secondary. I really had no kind of idea what this was. Did you have plans to do, did you have a thought to do something else? Like, did you want to be something else? No. Okay. I had no... I was just, I don't know, like I told you earlier, um, and, but not on the podcast, like I have not a great memory, of, like not, not, I'm not able to recall things well. I was just sort of so of the moment and just sort of following whatever was happening in front of me. I, I didn't think very hard about what was going to be. Right. I don't know why. And so, no, I hadn't really envisioned what, I, I was really complacent and I just kind of went with what sort of path of least resistance for things. And so in a way, with my father for a long time really directing this, I thought, path of least resistance. I mean, we still fought a lot, but at the same time, it's just he, he made those choices. So, okay, I'll just go with that. So he, he suggested this. I said, sure, let's try it. Uh, I auditioned. I got accepted into the academy. And so I thought, well, this seems cool. I feel special again. Like, mm-hmm. I'm now going to go in on weekends from London, Ontario. I'll take the train to Toronto. Uh, my grandparents um, both passed away, but uh, they really lovingly let me stay at their home on the weekends. And so I'd come in on the train. I'd have these, like, afternoon classes and, and all this stuff. Um, and so that was, like, a, the beginning of a kind of an interesting moment where I realized, okay, maybe I'm not just, like, another one. Right. Well, how old would you have been? I would have been 16. Okay. 16, yeah. So... Is it a point where you fell in love with classical music? There were a couple of moments I remember even as a kid feeling something. Like I remember the first time uh, I started taking theory classes and then we, um, through the, the RCM syllabus, like you get these Norton recordings, right? It's like that comes with the textbook as a big thing of compact discs right. so for listening material. And one of the pieces on there was the Mendelssohn Midsummer Night's Dream Overture. I'm not sure you're familiar with it. it like He wrote it when he was 18 um, and it is... Something about it, like, really, like, inflamed my senses and really, like, kind of ignited, like, the imagine, like, some part of my brain, like, really ticked with it. And I remember listening to it a lot and just being really carried away by it. It's, like, a beautiful, because it's capturing, basically, it encapsulates, like, the Midsummer Night's Dream Shakespeare story. But the overture is just giving you a a taste of everything that's going to come. Right. But you get all, you hear all these amazing themes in it, and there's galloping, and there's love themes. And I remember thinking... Oh, this is something. Because my dad would take me to concerts, my brother and I, and I would just fall asleep through them, like at TSO and stuff. No offense to TSO, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I just slept. I, it made kind of no, no, no imprint on me, no impression on me. I remember that. Um, but it really took me a long time to, to, to say that I, was really, I really fell in love with classical music and, 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 the, and the literature. How about falling in love with the piano? Was there a moment where you thought, this is something special. You know, for me, it, it all came like really quite late. It's really funny how far I got considering how, <laughs> like how blasé I was about it. It's, it is kind of remarkable when I think about it. Um, and I guess I'm very fortunate uh, that I didn't just drop it. Yeah, for me, I would say in a way, my, my love for music has really formed and, and, and 
uh, what's the concretize? Is that a word? You know, like really, because <laughs> I've uh, my French sometimes my my fake French sometimes gets in the way of my vocabulary. Um, but like cements, you know, mm-hmm. it's really cemented. I would say in, in the last eight years, maybe. I'm 37 really? now, so yeah, maybe <laughs> at the end of my 20s was when I realized I really do love this instrument and I really do love this music and I really love, I love this art form. So, okay, I know you struggled with it as you were growing up. Did you ever hate it? No, I never hated it. No, okay. no, I can't say I ever hated it. It, it's 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 an inanimate thing. I, I no, I can't say I ever hated it. I hated my father at times for sure for like pushing me to do something that I didn't really want to do. You know, I mean, hate's a strong word. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I hate in the way a teenager hates. But no, I never I never resented classical music. I never resented the piano per se. But I had no kind of real relationship with it either. It was this kind of this kind of thing in my way. See, I don't understand how you could be as good as you are. <laughs> And I mean, like, I was watching you, and I was just flabbergasted at the way your fingers would fly across the keyboard. You know, and, and you know, obviously you're good, but I, I just don't know how you can get as good as you are without that Having passion. Having loved it that whole yeah. time. That's a really good question, Mako. And I think a lot of people listening might say, that's really unfair, in fact. Like, how is it you had these opportunities and you, like, weren't, you know what I mean? I think I, maybe there might be some. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, like, there were always glimmers of it. For sure. And I, I guess I'm being unfair to my younger self because perhaps like in my, you know, my early 20s, yes, I, there were things that I did love about it. But when I think about in retrospect from, from what I know now, I really didn't get it then. And I guess we'll always keep saying that, right? Yeah, about yeah. ourselves every five, every 10 years. We'll always look back and say, whatever you thought then, boy, were you like out to lunch and <laughs> really didn't get it. But no, I can't say I really had a passion for it. Not the not the way that I believe in it now, like deep down in me. You know what I mean? In in in, in its power to communicate and its power to to share and to yeah. I presume stuff. it's a gradual thing. But was there a moment where you realized, oh my god, I, this is unbelievable? It's <sighs> a really good question. I think it was, I mean, from, there wasn't a specific moment, unless, 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 again, in your great research, you have found something that I did say somewhere, because <laughs> maybe that's what you're getting at, and I'm just forgetting it. I just know the Schumer story. <laughs> when I, I dropped out of school, uh, I went, I moved to Montreal to, to, to start my master's there, and, and, I, and I dropped it. Uh, like a hot rock after the first year because so like the master's in music yes sorry yes my master's in music exactly in solo piano performance and I, I at a really great school University of Montreal um, with a really excellent professor with a whole ream of colleagues who were all excellent pianists and I just remember you know the life was you, sh- you, go, you have your lessons you have a few classes everyone's practicing Every, there's long hallways of rooms with pianos and everyone's practicing everyone's practicing a lot of the same music and everyone's practicing the same music for all the same competitions and I remember just thinking what am I doing like I, it's it's one of the, it's one of the f- uh, one of the few times in my life I, I I really thought like what am I doing, why am I like, how did I end up here and why am I doing this. Besides that, it's just what everyone else is doing and what seems like the thing to do, and so I stopped. I just like stopped going to to I barely arrived at my lessons, you know, because with your teacher like it's not just a professor in a room with you know three hundred kids. It's it's one on one lessons and so. And I really adored my teacher, and he was a very good man to me. So I tried to do my best to be present for those things. But for the most part, I, I really was slowly just kind of drifting out of it until one time, until eventually I just dropped out of the program. But I needed to work. 
so then I, I, I found work as a, as a collaborative pianist and accompanist, we might say, um, for, some, for like McGill University and some institutions, which basically means working with um, violin students, viola students, saxophone students, um, playing the piano part for pieces that they're preparing for their exams, for their lessons, for the recitals. Because I can sight read well, I can, I can look at music quite and, and be able to play it quite quickly. Um, it's like a parlor trick. It meant that it was like a really efficient way to make money because I didn't have to spend too much of my own time um, learning this stuff. I mean, really pragmatically speaking. And so then, then I, I could just sort of show up, do the rehearsal, and that's like the money I make is, you know, time for money, that whole thing. Sorry, I don't want specifics, but can, my, well, can a person make a living just doing that? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. If you're... If you're... Good. If you're good. Yes, absolutely. 100%. And, and at that point, were you thinking this is an option? For me, it was just a, I had no idea, Marco. I was just like, I need to work, so I guess I'm working now. You know, like, if there was one thing that was that, that of the many things my father's taught me, like, one was, and by example, is, like, working hard, like, diligence. Like, what, what you're doing, just, like, really commit to doing it, right? Not that I always exemplified that in the ways I did things, but the thought of just sort of, like, sleeping in my room, just, like, feeling sorry for myself like didn't make sense if I wasn't at school then I better be working right and so I was doing that well fast forward a bit you can come back to it later if you want but then after about seven years of doing that and like becoming quite good at it and all that stuff I hit this other point where I just said okay wait why am I doing this now and this would be looking uh, back in time looking from now probably four five four years ago and I would say, so that would make me 33. Boy, okay, so it's later than I thought. I would say, I would, but I'd say it's over that period of working. And then when I did that stop, where I would say, okay, I actually think I really do love music and I really believe in the piano. And I think I want to do something that is my own now. And what is your own would be pursuing a solo pianist career or a duo situation? Or Yeah, excellent question. Um... I haven't quite defined that yet. For sure, it means more solo music than I have done in the last while because because I came out of school and didn't do... You know, there are very sort of set paths for solo pianists. You basically enter as many competitions as you can, try to like win some prizes and, and, and get enough uh, notoriety do, you know, doing that, and then you hope that more recitals come. It's like a very difficult path, and it's like not a fun one, especially if you love working with others, as I do. And so I really sort of pushed that away for a long time. But there is a lot that is great about having the stage to yourself, right? There is so much that's amazing about because you decide everything. I mean, there are, of course, demands from the business. But for the most part, when you're on stage performing, it's just you. And there is no compromises that have to be made. You know, there's no, there's no sharing that needs to be done, which is kind of fun sometimes. Right. Um, I wonder, though, because when I watch you work with Jonathan Crow yes, yeah. from the TSO, yes. and I've seen you a few times, um, Obviously, you, your musical level is at a at a level that I can't comprehend. Like it's just crazy how good you are, and 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 to have the ability to watch you and watch you kind of rehearse or whatever and pick out. Oh no, that wasn't good, and I'm I hear no bad notes, and you guys aren't happy. But I mean, it's just you know. Nor do I know much about classical music, but I I know that you're at a level that's way high. So, as a pianist. Um, if you're a collaborative pianist mm -hmm, or, or an accompanist, mm -hmm. 
what is that how different is that and that training to being a solo pianist well it's like it is such a different beast it's kind of crazy in fact there are just so many solo pianists out there that could not for their lives like play like two minutes of music with someone else really in a way that okay. i would say is really successful and really musical okay maybe you can explain what a, a collaborative pianist role is like other than just yeah playing with another musician right. and featuring them right, but right. but what is your way of approaching that job and what makes it a good collaborative accompaniment right i mean a really great collaborative pianist and in the, the very ideal you know um and my work with jonathan like i would consider not not quite what i'm talking about because to me in that like that we're more colleagues and, and duo so when i talk about collaborative pianist i generally think more like an educational setting right but still a very advanced level very yeah. high very high level in a broad, the broadest term, like you are uplifting that musician, that other musician. You're doing everything you can. You are like, you are, I wouldn't say sublimating. That's a, that's a really strong term. It's not that you lose yourself entirely, but that like your, your mission and your goal should be to do everything you can to like take that person from where they are when they meet you and like leave them much better. Yeah. So that you are. You should be cognizant of the music and the demands of the music and the technical demands of their instrument and know how to, without getting in the way, you're not their teacher, you're not the teacher of their instrument, but understand like what are their challenges, how you can help them. A lot of it's like musical training. You can't talk about, the, I can't tell a violinist how to do whatever, but I can talk about phrasing, I can talk about shape of line, I can, t I can encourage them to sing and hear other instruments, even though they're playing the violin, often we're thinking about singers instead of our instrument. Even at the piano, we're always talking about singers. How would you sing this? How would a singer breathe here? You know, and so you're, you, you should be a, a great coach for these people, helping them see beyond like just the challenges of their, of their thing, of their instrument. Um, and also you just need to know like a, like a vast amount of repertoire because their time is not your time. You should not be practicing when they are there rehearsing with you. You should be such an expert on whatever piece of music they put in front of you so that every, so that if anything goes wrong, it should be them having done something wrong. You know what I mean? It should, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It should if it's you that, that, that you've done something wrong, then, you, like, you're, then you're failing. Like you're not like doing a really great, a great job as a collaborative pianist because you're getting in their way. You should not be getting in their way. You should be like supporting them. Yes. But I have, I mean, I have very high demands for what, <laughs> and it's not like I was always great. I was, you know, I'm talking very idealistically here for sure. There are plenty of times where I just face planted, you know, and, and, and wasn't always the best. Okay. But you also said that you had the ability to read things um, and not practice. Yes. Yeah. Um, because you were a good reader, because you had the training, yes, I yes, presume. Yes, yeah. But it's more than just reading, right? Like yes, yes. to to know the music yes. is is to know what the motivation behind the writing, the the thought behind yeah, the absolutely. piece or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to actually know. That's very perceptive, Marco. Yes, absolutely. You are totally right. It's not just a matter of putting my fingers down, like where the note says it. You're you're one hundred percent right. And I wish I could even identify where. Like attribute that to something like, oh yeah, that's because I listened to hours of music as a child and I just absorbed. There's like none of that. I don't know. I think I think again, it's just some people look at it and just say that's just unfair. I know, like my parents would remind me that I did used to work at sight reading and that I really enjoyed because I hated practicing, but I enjoyed sight reading. I loved the challenge of being able to really quickly assimilate 
what's right in front of me in my eyes, you know, and, and turn that into something. I loved that challenge. Okay. Is there ever a time, other than the first time you practice a piece, mm-hmm. that you're put in a position of playing without really rehearsing, but you're, you, you have the ability to read so that you could just look at the sheet music mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then when they flip the... Like, what amazes me is when you flip the page and... Like, do you know and you've never seen it before, you yeah. mean? <laughs> like, do you know what's coming up in that moment? And, and, it's, I, I, and I don't know what the difference is between using an iPad and clicking on to right. turn the page yourself yeah, yeah. Yeah. versus having somebody turn the page Pretty for you. Pretty much the same thing. You know, but I, so you asked me about, about, about important moments in my career. Okay, so here's one. So I was in school and um, I didn't really do much of this accompaniment stuff yet, right? I was still doing my solo piano with a little bit of chamber music, which means uh, like playing with other people right. in small groups, either duo or trio. And so there was a gig that came up. There was a summer music festival that had an opera program and they needed someone to just come in. Uh, they would have like a lot of singers who had applied for this program come through throughout the day and uh, they needed pianists to play their pieces for them. And I accepted it, not really understanding what it meant. And by, by up to that point, I had really not played much vocal repertoire, which is um, different from instrumental repertoire in the sense that it's just a different body of music, you know. Um, I accepted it anyway. And then when I realized, like, what I... The next day when they told me, okay, so here's how it's going to work, like, I, had, I couldn't believe how dumb I had been. Because I thought, like, okay, so I'll get all this music in advance, I'm going to practice it, and, I, and I'll get to rehearse with these singers. No, it's like they'll show up like 15 minutes before they'll hand you their music wow and then like see and then and then they'll do the audition i don't think like i breathed for the next six hours i just was in this state of heightened you know that fight or flight thing i was just i couldn't run like my my ego would not let me just like sorry i can't do this bye (laughs) there was no there was no choice right and so i just remember just like i don't think i swallowed either because i'm just just, and i'm just like (laughs) trying to like read the stuff and play it and and I survived. I sur- I'm not sure how bad it was, but I don't think it was disastrous. And that really like pushed my confidence in my ability to do like exactly what you're saying. Because you start to realize, you start, your brain has no choice but to try to just like see patterns and things. You know, so when you, say, when you turn the page, do you know what's going to come up? It almost doesn't matter because 99% of the time, it'll be just what preceded it. Not literally the same notes, but it's so rare that it's going to be something else, hmm. you know? So it's like, it's just seeing patterns. Like that is all, I think like uh, so much of our classical music repertoire is. Now for the contemporary music, it's a, it's a little bit harder because the patterns are not so obvious anymore. But for a massive chunk of our music from Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Chopin, and I'm covering now like 200 years already, yeah. in their own way, like it's just a lot of patterns. And it's just being able to, it's just like letting your brain see those. I, you know, every time I watch it, what do they call it? Are they, uh, the people who flip Tur- the page turner? Page turner. Yeah, yeah, page turner. Every time I watch them, I get nervous for them. Because <laughs> I, I just think, oh. And I'm sure there are moments and there are stories about things going very wrong. Oh, right? I've, had some, I've had some good ones. <laughs> so what happens if they try to turn it and they don't turn it properly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has entirely to do with just how much, how well you know that piece of music. Because a lot of time we have the last few bars memorized and the next few bars memorized. You know, just by virtue of practicing it that way, because you only have left and right page. And, and when you're practicing by yourself, you have to turn your own page anyway. And so if you're like... Oh, right. That's true. Yeah. So if you're not a dummy, you're like, you're trying to memorize a little bit what happens before and after. And some people, that's not even an issue at all. Some people just memorize music just like that. And they barely need the music. It's just like there as a, as a reminder. Do you ever fake it? 
do I ever fake it? If you sometimes you have no choice, you yeah. must, you <laughs> must, you know. <laughs> But I'll tell you about this one page turner if we have time for it. It's really good. Uh, we're in this, it's with my piano duo partner, Janelle Fung. And we were in a, a small town somewhere in Quebec. And we had a very nervous page turner. Very nervous. I understand that it can stress people out, the idea that yeah, you can me move, too. Because it's one of those un, unrewarding, ungrate, unrewarding jobs where you can do nothing to improve a performance, but you have all the power <laughs> to just demolish it, right? right? And so this old lady was, was quite scared, but we tried to tell her, listen, we know this music really well, nothing to panic about. So we get to the concert. The rehearsal went fine enough. And then at the concert, she started doing something we hadn't seen her do in a rehearsal. She... I think in an effort to kind of stay low and not be like distracting for the audience when she got up, because you sit in your seat on the side and yeah, you yeah. get up when, it, when it's time to turn, she kind of lifted herself, which is it's weird. Like she like put like she put a hand on the piano on the side to lift herself up. Okay, that's a bit odd. Like Jerry, don't touch. Like don't don't get in our field. You know, yeah, in yeah, that yeah. way. Okay. And then at one one time she goes to do that, but she puts her hand on the piano lid on, instead, which is the lid that covers the keyboard, right? right? And she slips, and her full weight goes on this keyboard lid, and we're playing. And this is, it's like, it would, if our hands had, yeah, yeah. had stayed there, it would have crushed our fingers. Because she, like, slipped and literally put her full weight on it. By some miracle, like, and this is what was funny, we realized after the fact, in our, in our dress rehearsal, I put it out to Janelle, hey, look, this is so funny. I showed her that the keyboard lid had broken, and so it wouldn't close all the way. It closed like two thirds of the way and wouldn't shut. I said, "Oh, that's kind of funny." It's like clock. It made this like wooden sound. Clock. So at the concert, everyone watches this lady get up, slip, and then they hear clock. They hear this huge sound because again, the keyboard lid saved us by being broken, and we just kept playing. And she's just going, "Sorry, sorry, sorry," and we're just trying to play this concert. So that's what can happen with page turners. You know, anything can happen. Okay, so when you're in that moment and you're reading the music, yeah, yeah. Uh, how, what's your focus? Is it completely just stuck in what you're reading and mm-hmm, what you're playing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, do you have the ability to notice anything else? I mean, depend. It really depends uh, so much on just like any performer, right? Who have charts or whatever. It depends just how well you know that that the music. And so, I mean, because generally, you know, there is this convention in classical music when you're playing a solo concert. Um, it's changing now, thank goodness. But for a long, long time, and especially for solo pianists, the convention is that you play everything memorized. There's no score on stage. Was it not the way you used to be at one point? It was, for a long time, it wasn't. Up from Bach to Mozart, Beethoven, so up from whatever, from the beginning of music up until through the beginning of the 1800s, everyone had music. There was just no question. You might have had it, you you know, just by the act of doing something, like your muscles are memorizing it, your brain is memorizing it. So it doesn't mean that they necessarily needed it. But the convention was, no problem, have music on there. It means nothing. It's not an indication of your ability. And then... There was a, a, a composer pianist by the name of Franz Liszt who came around. Right. And this guy's like the Justin Bieber of his generation. Like he just could, he was beautiful and charming and, and magnetism for days and could play anything on the piano. And so he did many, a few things to change sort of the, the view of the, of the solo musician to turn it into this virtuoso like e- event. And one of the things he also did was said, music, never heard of it. And he would just memorize like, it was a question. There was never a score on in front of him ever again. And that literally, he was so influential that from then on, as a solo pianist, it was seen for, if you had a score on stage, it's because you didn't really know it well enough and that you just weren't good enough. 
and so that's how we're taught growing up. You know, now as I said, it's changing again. People are starting to relax and, and say, yeah, okay, we're not all like superhuman demigods, and it's okay to like have a score on there. Now with chamber music, you see me only do mostly chamber music, yeah. And so the convention has remained. You can always have music on there. It's just one of these silly like classical music things. It's not to say that the act of memorizing is not a useful one. It's not. It's just not always pragmatic, and not everyone's brain is also you know set up the same way there's some people who can look at a score have photographic memory and just memorize it but the act of memorizing in its best form is a is a kind of intense internalization right of this music and it is it allows you to perform in a different way but there's a big gap from reading the music to having it memorized with that kind of really deep feeling i mentioned where it's just terrifying and like where you spent too much of your brain just trying to make sure you don't mess up. Sorry, that big gap exists in, in, in you being able to do that or is that does that exist in every new project you, you take on that you have to memorize? <laughs> I think the more you are in this, in, in, the more it, our brain, it's just like a muscle, right? And so the more you're in getting in the habit of memorizing, then the easier it, it gets to, 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 to memorize stuff. Okay, so if I asked you right now, I said, here's a piano. Can yeah. you play everything you've memorized? Like, how many different oh, pieces would you be able to play? No, not that many. I could, I could play ch- little chunks of things that I've memorized, but what I could play for you would be what I've done most recently. Okay, because, so that's... Because it fades, right? It all fades because you're also cramming new stuff in. Well, and that, that's the thing that most, I, at least I didn't realize, mm-hmm. especially in the world of classical music. You yes. do festivals yeah. and they ask you, I don't know if it's, they ask you what you want to play or they say, hey, the theme is this. Can you right. think of something you want to play? Right, right, right. And so just in the course of the last three weeks at the Toronto Summer Music Festival, mm-hmm. yeah. I saw you play six Beethoven sonatas. That's right, yeah. yeah. Plus a number of other pieces. That's right, yeah. And I presume you've played other things okay, that yeah, I didn't yeah. see. <laughs> so it's amazing to me how, you, like, it just amazes me how much you have to learn and practice. In yes. fact, you'd asked if we could delay the interview That's because right. you had to practice. How much practicing goes into, like, how much practicing are you doing on a daily basis? Really depends. Really depends on what's, what's coming up. My max is about five or six hours. If I'm really stressed about something and I'm going to, like, fall on my face if I don't sit there and, and handcuff myself maybe I could do seven hours but honestly for me after five or six it becomes a waste of time there's you, like it's not a steady return on investment do you practice every day no 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 <laughs> no 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 to be really honest with you and I know Jonathan Crow, who you mentioned who I was playing these concerts with will roll his eyes if he ever listens to this <laughs> but I was really practicing the most because I had a solo recital on Monday night of this this past week and so I'm quite stressed for those always because, oh, it's, it's just me on stage. And, right. and, you know, and then also on Monday through to this Friday, just yesterday, Jonathan and I had all those Beethovens, the ones that you edited. We also played live twice a day. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I looked at those for uh, 30 seconds this week before any of the concerts. Well, I can see why Jonathan would be upset. <laughs> <laughs> and he heard it. That's why Jonathan's like, well, that explains why it sounded so bad. Um, but we're all, I don't mean to brag, though it will sound like bragging to most people, and especially to people who know this music. It will sound like bragging, but I don't mean it to be. I've played those pieces quite a lot, but I've also spent, like, I really hate wasting time doing something one way when I know it could be just done faster, better, a different way, right? And so there are so many pianists, not just pianists, I'm sorry, instrumentalists, people who, at whatever level, 
who just practice, who think practicing means sitting there and just woodshed all day, like brainlessly. Like just do this, do this, and just do it again. If it doesn't work, just do it more again, and eventually it's going to get better. And in some weird way, like it might get a little bit better depending on how you define what better is. But for me and from what my, my teachers have taught me, it's not like my brilliance. It's just like my teachers. It's like don't, like don't do that. Like think, stop and think. Think like develop your self-awareness. Develop your ears. Develop the things that really will, will, will inform your brain and tell you what you actually need to do to fix what's going on. Don't just throw your body up against the wall and see what sticks and hope it just gets better. I know that seems so obvious and the way I say it sounds very obvious, but it's just not taught enough, I think, like in, in, the, in, in, the, in the way we train in a lot of classical music. No one says throw your body at it endlessly, but no one really forces a student and, and say, wait, take your hands off the keys. Okay, analyze for me, like, something went wrong? What went wrong? No one does that. Because everyone feels like they don't have time. They feel like they have too much music to learn. They feel like, I just got to, like, do this. There's so much pressure to just <gasps> keep your hands on the keys and just get better at it. And, and not enough time internalizing and really thinking. And so all that to say, because of what I've been taught and how I've been, especially these last five, six years, been thinking about the piano, um, I think I've become even much better at just the first time I learned something, unless it was a real rush job, I've probably learned it really awfully well. So that the next time I see it, even if it's five, six years, I'll know exactly where in this 30-minute piece of music, I'll know exactly which maybe two minutes of that music I need to really look at to um, reintegrate into my body. Like the stuff that I know is, is challenging, I need to revisit. And I'll know the rest of it, what I don't need to look at because I just know I can just do it. Okay, so... What is challenging? Is it challenging because there's a lot of notes? Is it challenging because it's something physically that's difficult to execute? Like, mm-hmm. or is it is it a mental thing? Like, mm-hmm. or is it all of that? Mm-hmm. You know, my teacher had this really great uh, uh, analogy. He said, "We're we're all made up of four different parts." Phil, I said, "Okay." He says, "We have Einstein." All right. So Einstein is the part of our brain that understands structure, harmony, and the, the constru- how, how music is constructed on a, on a, on a very cerebral level. Um, and then we have Mother Teresa, who is like the heart and soul of this music, that like the part of you, the esoteric part of you that like speaks to other people and is human and, and resonates and all that stuff. And then he used this reference, which may sound old now for some people, but he said, and then you have Tyra Banks or Cindy Crawford. He's like a model. The person who is interested in the aesthetics, the beauty of sound, like the literal, like what is a beautiful sound? What sounds good, you know, and is interested in, in those things. And then finally, the fourth part of us, he said, is the dog. He said, and, and all three of these parts um, teach the dog. Yeah, they all train the dog. And then when you get on stage, the only person on stage is the dog. And that's the only thing that like, you know, and, and, but there's, it's like, there's like, like a whole system in his analogy, but basically this idea that the dog is the one that does what it's been trained to do and that you need to have made sure you've trained it well with, with these three people and then get out of its way when, it, when it's down there doing its thing. Because if you haven't trained it well, well, the dog will only do whatever you've taught it to do. Right. The dog is, yeah, that's what he said, the dog is the best dog in the world. It will do exactly what you've trained it to do, good or bad. So if you are not consistently giving it time to understand the cerebral thing, if you're not consistent, if you're if you spend if you spend an inordinate amount of time 
practicing making a practicing a mistake, you know, because you want to run through a piece of music. You just kind of, oh, I always make a mistake here. I'll come back to it. Right. Don't think you're not tra- just because you're not considering a practice. Don't think you're not training the dog, right? Yeah, yeah. So don't be surprised when it comes to performance time, when the dog just does what you've been training it to do, right? And also, don't be surprised when you start trying to like get in its way on stage. Uh, this is not working right. Oh no! This don't. No, this is this is supposed to be beautiful here. This is a, the dog's just gonna lay down and roll over. It's just gonna say, "I just I can't do this. You, I can't even do what you've been training me." There's this whole kind of system that he yeah, had. Yeah. yeah, thinking about it. Um, and why did I get into this? The whole point being that I've just been thinking a lot about how to do what I need to do the best way possible. Like I've just been really thinking a lot about how to train the dog well. <laughs> Do you know how much you can take on? Because I, I like when I look at the last three weeks of your mm-hmm. life and you're doing all these <laughs> concerts. And one thing I should also mention is that solo concert you did on Monday. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, you also asked uh, an audience member to tell or to request something. That's right. Suggest I, something for you to play. That's right. Which is obviously, it, it, I don't know if it means that it will be something you know in your repertoire or if mm-hmm. it's something completely mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. But that that means additional work for you. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> yes, that, that is that is what that means. Yeah. So I I, I told I asked Jonathan to let uh, t- ticket buyers to email um, email me the, if they had a request for a piece of music, and I would make the final selections at the end of the day. Yeah. But I set aside a good third of the concert time for these requests. And so, as you said, I, I make judicious choices. I think I look at things that a musically might are coherent. Right. thematically and then I look at things that are just simply way too long that won't fit because I want to fit as many requests as I can and then I look at yes the balance of oh I've played that and I think that fits great I haven't played that but I could just play it right now probably okay no problem and then a couple things I go oh boy that's quite a <laughs> bit of a challenge but it's not that long so I can't really make an excuse to say that it was too long so I'm going to give it a shot wow yeah yeah so yeah I did that <laughs> okay, so in the last three weeks, but many, anyway, you're saying yeah. I've how many different lot. pieces would you have played? I mean, there was those ten sonatas, yeah. which is, I mean, on average, like I don't know. I, I guess let's they say on average uh, a total that's like five hours of music, right? If we say they're thirty minutes each, but which is yeah, not yeah. quite. I mean, some are quite are shorter actually. Let's say four hours of music, and then I had my solo recital, so that was maybe an hour and fifteen of music. So that's five hours and fifteen minutes of music. And and then I and then I had a couple other little things. I don't know. It's probably only six hours of music in the last, <laughs> which is actually for your listeners an extraordinary, not not to toot my own heart. It is a lot. It's an astounding amount of music. Yeah. Now, do you have any other festivals this summer? Um, no other festivals this summer coming up. I already did most of them. I have other. I have I have some recordings coming up. I have other music that I need to practice right now. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. yeah, so it's constantly. Oh, wait, actually, I did forget. Yeah, I had another video. The I had another video project the weekend before Toronto Summer Music started. So that's another hour of music. So, yeah. yeah. So that's <laughs> like, but that's your life. This is not unusual. This is correct. As a classical yeah. musician, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're often asked to play sometimes new things that you've never played before. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, at what point do you know that it's too much? Or is that no, not too much. Well, I, wonder, <laughs> I, I do wonder about that. But at what point do you know that, okay, I'm comfortable. This is, this is ready to go. This yeah, is yeah, ready yeah. to be performed. Oof, that's a tough one. Boy, that's a tough one, Michael. Like, when, when are you happy with, with a project that you've edited? Like, do you, do, you, uh, do you often have a sense of... Yeah, I'm lazy, so it's, I'm happy with this. <laughs> Me too. I am also lazy. That's the funny thing. That's why I've gotten good at practicing, because I am extraordinarily lazy. 
I said it before, but I mean it. I really hate practicing. It's like, so I'm very lazy. Anyway, when do you feel it's enough? Oh, I don't know. And when do you know that you that it, that it's like good enough? I don't know. I mean, you have a kind of a basic standard understanding. I'm not playing too many wrong notes. You know? But do you ever go on stage thinking, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure if I'm prepared enough for this? Yes, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, as a business, you don't have any choice. It's not like you yeah. say, you, you can say to someone, you know what, I'm, unless you're... Unless you're Lang Lang, who is a very famous concert pianist, you could just say, oh, you know what, I'm sick. I'm just going to cancel. And the world will forgive you because you're Lang Lang. You know what I mean? And the organization. But most of us, no, we don't have a, that choice to really be like, oh, no, sorry, not ready. You know, you gotta, you got to be there when it's there and you got to make the best of it that you can. There is no, there is no, there is no backing. Okay, so backing you out. said a few years ago, you thought, I want to concentrate a little more on being a solo pianist. That's right. What motivated that decision like how did or that come about it's more that I, I want to concentrate on doing the things that really make me happy I want that I want to try to build a career in classical music and, and build my life you know in, when you're in classical music it's hard to separate those two things you know for me personally it's Sorry, like your separate. life your, like work from life okay yeah. it's like they're, they kind of are a little bit intertwined you know not for everybody um so for me, it was, it was more, I want to be happy and proud of the things I choose to do. You know, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure your other guests or you yourself like know this, this idea. It used to be three, but now they say there are four pillars or four conditions, right, about accepting a project. There's uh, the money that it pays. Right. There's uh, the people you work with. There's the content of the actual project. Right. And then one that I think someone recently added, which I think makes sense, is also uh, what it does for your career. Like, is it the, the fame of it, you know, or the, the visibility of right. it? And so I think when you start out, you don't have much choice. You basically just take whatever gig comes. Yeah. You might get one of those four things. And as you advance, you can be more demanding of those things. You could say, I need at least a minimum of two of these things. I might hate the people I'm working with. It might, um, I might not care so much about the music. But it pays great, and it's going to be tons of visibility. Right. Vice versa, you might make choices like, I love the people. Um, pays crap, but I love the music also. Not great visibility, but whatever. You know? Yeah. And I just realized I hadn't really thought about that too much for a lot of the th- stuff I was choosing. And so often it was just, oh, the money's good. Oh, the money's good. Oh, the money's good. Or I'll make sure the money's good. Or, you know, or the people are good. Or actually, people's not good, but the money's good, the music's good. I realized one that was really important to me, actually, more than most of these things, is the people. Yes, I mean, we have great music. And even if I don't think it's that great music, that's okay. I mean, on, on the balance of it, we just have great repertoire um, as pianists and in the chamber music repertoire. But I realized the people one, how much... It's not, for me, equally weighed anymore. It's almost become now only three things. The money, the career thing, and the content. For me, the non-negotiable has become the people thing. And so that was for sure, a, and I'm sort of like, it's, I'm clarif- it's clarified for me now speaking with you, or this morning when I was thinking about speaking with you, I thought about this concept actually, funny enough. But I would say that was a big change. It wasn't that I said I want to play by myself anymore, but it's just that like when I want to play, like I don't want to play anymore with anyone that I don't admire, respect, enjoy working with. You know, I'm just tired of that. There's just too much, there are too many great people out there that I don't need to say to myself, oh, this person's like a real not nice person but I'll learn something and the money's good or whatever like no I'm so tired of that like mm. I just don't think like in, uh, it's, it's just can't be worth it <laughs> what, what does 
bad musicians? I mean, not nice musicians? <laughs> no, not nice. Yeah, ba- a bad musician? Yes, that can be tricky. It ought, that's, that's another thing entirely. You know, someone who's, yeah, not, yeah. who's not very supremely gifted at their instrument, um, but has a lot of love for it and a, and a lot of will and determination... I'm willing to... It depends on the context, obviously. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Sure. Like like right now, like at Toronto Summer Music, we're, we're in the final week, which is the Community Academy. I mentioned it, which is uh, generally adult amateurs um, who have otherwise full-time jobs, but they take this week off um, and they, they come and they, they get either grouped up with us or just coached by us. Right. And be, because they're amateurs, they're not supremely technically gifted, but they're all there. They all take on time off work, and they and they've paid their their their, their tuition fees because they just love the, the living crap out of doing this. And so working with them in this capacity is phenomenal, because they just have so much love and so much desire to to learn and to to get better at doing this, you know, and to say something. So that's totally fine. But there are for sure frustrating times on on stage with quote unquote professionals where yeah. you just realize, oh whoa, like you have gotten by on reputation. And like your 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 capacity to do this has not kept up with your reputation. Oh, for sure. Okay, so when you decided to become a solo, yes, sorry, or a con- I, I don't like, answer this question properly. When you when you decide to concentrate more, because mm-hmm. it's not like giving up everything else. It's just nope. working more towards that. Yeah. How? This, go ahead. How sorry. difficult is that? Like, I mean, because there's so many great players out there, yeah. and I don't know if yeah, yeah. you have to establish your own style so that yeah, yeah. when you hit a note, they'll say, "Hey, that's Phil." Yeah. Like how difficult it's is that? It's an excellent question, and and this this has tons of parallels in the music world, not just classical music. You yeah. can imagine Ringo Starr or someone like if you if if you when if you were known to be doing something as part of something else, if you were known to be a collaborative pianist working with young students and that was your thing, then trying to convince people, oh, hey, I'm I'm a so- I can also be my own thing on the stage. I can carry a show. Right. People will look at you like, yeah, okay, that's nice. Like we'll humor you maybe sometimes, but like whatever, you know. There, it's a, it's, I won't say it's a peculiarity of the business. It is just part of the entertainment business. This idea yeah. that if you preferred to be in the shadows before and that's where people appreciated you, then you have to like work four times as hard than if you were nobody. But then your first outing as a soloist and people say, okay, then we'll judge you by that, by that rules, by that, that, that tape measure. Right? So how did you overcome that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still working at it. Mako, <laughs> actually, very honestly, I'm still working at it um, because a part of it is my own fight. In fact, a big part of it is because it's easy for me to blame other people. It's easy for me to blame the business and say, oh, they don't take me seriously because of this. They don't take me seriously because of this. But at the end of the day, for me, it's really a, it's my own fight. It's like, how seriously do I take myself? How much, do I, how much confidence do I really have in myself you know, to, to be on the stage and to really say something and to, to believe that it's worthy of being heard and, and to believe that I, that, like, I am enough? That to me, actually, I think is, is, the, is, the, is the much bigger challenge. Of course, at, on a technical, pragmatic level, I need to make sure I'm learning that repertoire, that I have like a good amount of solo piano repertoire in my hands, that I could do a recital like that, step in when I need, you know, take advantage of the opportunity when opportunity knocks, no doubt. But the bigger part of it for me, like it's, it is all a mind game. It's all a mind game. Because as, as you've alluded to a lot, yeah, I feel pretty, for the most part, there are like piano gods out there that I just can't touch and that I don't, I wouldn't deign to. Like there are some people who are just so mechanically gifted that I would have to work even at my level. And I understand that I'm at a, at a good level, a very high level. Very that high. I would, to, to, to reach where they are at, that like last 5%, it just wouldn't be worth my time. I would have to like spend years woodshedding 
and, and really developing the kind of accuracy and the kind of facility and the kind of agility that they have to do the kind of superhuman feats that they do. Your listeners could look up pianists like uh, Yuja Wang is her name. Lang Lang is a very, another good example, but it's not just Asian people. It's just what I'm thinking of at the moment. Yeah. Marc-André Hamelin, Hamelin uh, to, to pronounce it in an anglophone. These are pianists that can just do things that I will never do. But it's also not the majority of the music that can be played. It is like a specialized kind of, you are a pianist of the highest like echelon. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, what was I getting at? But otherwise, no, I, from a technical level, I feel pretty good. It was, was, my, was the point I was making. I, I get so lost sometimes. Um, I feel pretty good that I can tackle most of the repertoire that I would want to play anyway. For me, the question is, well, A, there's like a musical understanding, right? Like spending more time getting to know the composers better, getting to understand this music better, under, trying to understand the relationship between me and this piece of music. But moreover, it, it's like, I don't know, it's always about the, the time on stage. Like my challenge, every time you, when you're watching me playing, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to the music. I know this music well. You know, it's all singing in my, in my head and in my ears. And when Jonathan's playing it, it's like, it's, it's, it's this sort of, constant weaving and interaction of like the score I hear in my, my head versus like what Jonathan's doing, what I'm doing. Right. And, 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 and adapting that all the time. But for the, but, but mostly it's me sitting there saying, how can I sit most comfortably? How can I, is my shoulder, like, how can I be the most present and relaxed, but efficient and engaged, but not stressed so that what I hear and what I want to produce like comes out. How can I give my body the best chance like to do what it wants to do? Right. Like that is what, that, that is, that, that is what I'm thinking like 90% of the time. It's not, Oh no, what am I going to do with this phrase? What I'm going to do is this phrase. What my teacher has always taught me and what I believe and what works almost all the time is that if you've really done your work right and you really, you, you practice in your ear first. And that's not like a that's not a casual like sit back and just like listen to the music. No, in fact, you'd be sitting in silence and th- listen, thinking, singing the score. You know, singing your piano part in your head. It's actually exhausting. And like you know, to really not just sing a tune, but to really think through the whole thing. If you really do that, and you really sh- you shape what you want, and you think about what you're trying to communicate, you know, and express, then the only thing that's left is just your body get you getting in the way of your body. It's just that you not allowing your ear to just transmit, to tell your body, just do this, just, just, just do this. Most of the time it is you overstepping your bounds and like trying to, you're sending conflicting signals because in our effort to want to do something beautiful, we clench up. You know what I mean? In the effort to not want to ruin something, we end up ruining something, right? Mm. It's this whole thing of clutching something too hard. And for me, that is like, that is my, like, for sure, my, the, the, the biggest challenge I see on stage for myself and as a pianist and, and moving forward as a, as a musician, solo or otherwise. You know what I mean? It's this idea of how can I hold something and just let it be, like, the beautiful the way it is and just let that, like, for 30 minutes at a time, you know, for five seconds, for 10 seconds, for an hour. Like, I know that to reach the level that you are at, you have to have certain... Um, standards and so it's not mm-hmm. like you oh yeah that was good enough I think you reach higher and higher but do you yeah. ever get to actually enjoy it like yeah. you know I don't yeah, know yeah. how often you feel like you've given the perfect performance <laughs> and if that even exists right, right. but when I watch your work I just wonder like 
do you know how good you are? Do, do you think, like, do you get to listen to this and go, oh my God, what we just did was amazing? Or, oh, we hit that one bad note. That's, you know what I mean? Like, I just get that feeling that it's, I don't know. No, no, no. This, this excellent, Marco, you asked such great questions. Me, I, I could care less for the most part. I don't care about a wrong note if my intention and my whole setup was feeling good. If I knew I had like done my work in advance, and if I knew that I went for it with my heart and with a with like a, a with a freedom, you know, then if I happen to hit a wrong note, like I could not care less. And I tell this to people I coach, and I mean it. I, in fact, the, one of the great things in my life that was very freeing was just accepting that I will always play wrong notes, which I know sounds very obvious, but like I just accept it and it's okay. But if I play wrong notes, if I make a bad sound, if I if I if I don't sing a phrase well because of because I because I'm rigid because I, I get a moment of stress because I tense up, then I'm very frustrated with myself. I have no issue with playing wrong notes. Like for me, it's so inconsequential as a as a as an outcome. For me, it has everything to do with the preparation and the lead up, and then whatever comes, come what may, come what may, you know. But the the idea of like, but the idea that I am restricting myself from 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 giving myself the best chance, that's what frustrates me. I've never felt I've given a perfect perfect performance. For me, there's there's no such thing. But not in the sense that, but neither am I trying to go for a perfect performance. Right. But do you get to enjoy it? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I'm always I, I I'm I'm easy at loving lots of what what I do. Playing with Jonathan, for example, like I love so much of what's going on. No no question. I'm not one to like like flog myself endlessly when things go wrong. You know, I'm a fairly pragmatic person for the most part. And so, yes, I love a lot of what I do. The music is always nourishing. Even if I feel like I'm not doing a great job with it, I feel always very privileged and so happy to be able to play this incredible stuff. Like, there's always things that I'm, I'm very much enjoying. I would say I enjoy a good, I don't know, on average, let's say I'm really happy with 75% of it. Always. That's not bad. I think that's very good, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm generally, because, I mean, you, you know me, I'm a generally, like, pretty upbeat person. Like, I, I'm, I'm generally very happy um, with these things. Like I think, but I think about my recital, for example. On Monday night, the solo show that I did. Right. Of that hour and fifteen music, minutes of music, I would say there was probably twenty minutes of that that I was actually thrilled about. Thrilled, exceptionally thrilled. I'm not always thrilled. Sometimes I might be just twenty, you know, whatever twenty uh, twenty minutes of it that I was very happy with. I was thrilled with twenty minutes of it, which for me was like a big milestone. That's like great because that showed me, wow. Because I sort of achieved that flow. You know, we always talk about flow, whether it's tennis, golf, whatever, we flow. And I felt like I achieved 20 minutes of flow out of an hour and something. And that to me is like outstanding. And it gives me hope that there's potential for me to increase that, that amount, you know? But I played lots of wrong notes, actually, <laughs> in that 20 minutes. A lot, sorry. For me, like I played sort of unnecessarily wrong notes. And I go, that's a shame. I could probably have just focused a little bit more and taken care of that and cleaned it up. But very happy with that. And then another 40 minutes that I was perfectly pleased with. You know, I thought, this was, it was good. It wasn't embarrassing. And then maybe another 15 minutes where I was like, oh, wow, Phil. Like, you really could have prepared better for that. You were definitely too stressed for that. You were just not in a good headspace for that. That I would, like, not want to be shared online. Like, not want people to hear. Well, okay. So, but do you think your audience yes. even has any inkling of that? Grand majority? No. For sure not, certainly not consciously. Right. I like to think that that 20 minutes that I was really thrilled about, I would like to think was, expe- was especially touching 
I would, I would really hope so. That's, that's actually what encourages me to keep going. You know, I like to believe that when you really reach that kind of flow, that, that the air, whatever, that things resonate in that way and, and, and people can relax evermore. You know what I mean? Because you know when we see a performer on stage that is clearly a little bit stressed, even if they're not messing yeah, yeah. up, you are stressed for them. Because yeah. y- our focus as an as a, as a audience member, whatever, goes to wherever the artist is focusing on, right? Whether we are aware of it or not. And so, and I tell this to students all the time. If you are worried about your intonation or you're worried about your accuracy, A, you, it's probably going to get worse on your end, but B, that is how we will judge. We won't even think about it, but that's what we're going to focus on hmm. instead of everything else that could be going. And so when you miss a note, if I felt like that's all you were thinking about, then I'm going to go, oh, oh, like he missed that note, right? Instead of you miss a note, but like, holy cow, like what musicality and what expression and what like ferocity, you know, or whatever it may be. Right. Okay, so a few years ago, you were honored with Prix Goyer. Yes, that's right. Uh, the first one to receive it. That's correct. It's not something you went for. No, nope, that's that Somebody correct. called you and said you won. That's correct. What did that do for your confidence? What did that do for your musicianship? <sighs> Boy, that's a, you know, it's actually more complicated than people might think. Like, so it's this, it's this big prize. It came with like a, a good chunk of money. And there was also some like videos recorded and, 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 and just like good opportunities for, for uh, visibility. And I was so appreciative. But at the same time, time. So for one thing, yes, it gave me this recognition that I had been working hard and that people were noticing. That's great. Because right. it's, really, it's really in recognition of like, in particular, your ability to collaborate, this idea that you work well with others. You know, it's not about rewarding soloists. It's really rewarding the, your, your teamworkiness, right. <laughs> to use the scientific term. At the same time, I don't know. Like, did I feel like I deserved it? That's like really hard to, that's like, yeah. no, no one's asked, but, but like, I could think of I could think of other people who I think are deserving, you know, or even if I was deserving, was it deserving of that much of something? It was it was kind of a. I think it jump started like a thinking process, you know, where I was saying, okay, do I want to keep doing this though, even though I'm so good at doing this? You know, it was this thing that it recognized me, but and it was a great kickstart, as I said, to to get me to think. But, but get you to think maybe cons- to consider more solo work. Yeah, which is kind of essentially what it did. I mean, <laughs> which is kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of right? Yeah. It's totally backwards, isn't it? That's what I find funny about it. In some ways, I'm like, do you want, do you want this back? Because like, I, I'm not sure if you want me. No, but there's no like strings attached with yeah, it. Yeah. It just is in recognition of it. And the truth is, it continues to inform my career. Even as I try to do more, even as I now do more solo music, I love chamber music and playing with others will be a big part of my life. Mm. It'll be a big part of my career. I, it's not like even now, it's not like I could stop doing chamber music and, and make a living just doing solo. Like it, it's, a, it's a work in progress. You know what I mean? But neither would I want to excise that from my life because it is something that I treasure very much and that I love about classical music. The, the huge amount of repertoire. You know, as a solo pianist, yeah, you could just play to the end of your life every day a piece of music and never like circle back on the same piece of music. there's just like way too much music written for solo piano but to me that's really missing out on like the richness of, of what's out there you know um, I'm going to have to wrap this up but thank you so much for doing this I'm, you know I'm, I, thanks for I, listening I to me <laughs> no but when <laughs> I watch your work it's, it's unbelievable <laughs> to me that's what comes out of your fingers the, the <laughs> notes you play it's well, um, so I'm, I really appreciate that. And then um, I just want to finish with one question. Do you have goals at this stage in your life? Do you, do you have goals for your musical career? At the moment, my goals are very simple. I, 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 as, I, as I alluded to, 
like I only want to be not I want to be proud of and not in the sense of like people with, of, of notoriety I want to be proud of the people that I, I, I work with you know I want to be working with good people and I want I want them to feel like they worked with a good person and I want to to touch people like I want to I don't want to play a note that where I'm not thinking about trying to communicate with someone like those my goals are very simple these you know at the moment there's nothing grand I don't there's not a particular stage I wish I'm on there's no there's no kind of award or prize that like I'm, I'm gunning for you know there's there's no like critic that I'm hoping like write something about me not really maybe I'm in like on a Sunday night when I read someone else's review I go, oh that'd be nice but no my goals really these days are very simple like I, I want people to 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 be able to feel like they can feel resonance like when I play something that they feel like it resonates with them and, and that they it touches them in some way or that it relieves them of something like very simplistic Wow, it's a real pleasure getting to talk with you. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Michael. Really a pleasure. Mm-hmm.